Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, where we will begin reading at verse 17 and read to the end of the chapter. Ephesians 4, verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. That ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry, and sin not, let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil." Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Our text is verses 20 through 24. But ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness." Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the opening word, but, is an important one. In the first place, because it draws a great contrast between two different peoples and their behavior. That contrast that is described in the text is over against what are called the other Gentiles. He's speaking to Gentiles. He regards them as Gentiles, and he has something to say about them, but they are in contrast to other Gentiles. We considered those other Gentiles in verse 17, and they have a problem. Their basic problem is that they have an empty mind. They have a vain mind. Therefore, their understanding of God, we read, is darkened. And because their understanding about God is darkened, they're alienated from God. They know not God because of the ignorance in them. He goes on to say that they have no feelings for their neighbor. So there's something basically wrong with their mind with regard to God and the neighbor, and therefore their entire life is characterized by lasciviousness, uncleanness, and greediness. But now, says the apostle, there's something different about you. These are the Gentiles in the church that he is addressing. They, on the other hand, do not have an empty mind. 
their understanding is not darkened. They are not alienated from God. And consequently, their lives are also different so that they love God and love their neighbor. That's the great contrast of that word, but. But that word also is explaining the difference. It's explaining the reason for that radical difference between an empty mind and a full mind, between an enlightened mind and a dark mind, between a heart that loves God and loves the neighbor versus a a heart that hates God and hates the neighbor. And the reason is that one of these peoples, one of these kinds of Gentiles, have learned Christ. But ye have not so learned Christ. That is, they learned Christ. They learned Christ because they were personally taught by Christ. They heard Him, He says. So, from Christ, they were taught the true knowledge of God. They were imparted righteousness and holiness. Their mind, therefore, is no longer empty, but full. Full of understanding. It's no longer dark, but it's enlightened. They are no longer ignorant, but wise. Their heart is no longer blind, but it sees. And so also, they do not walk as others. This great change, this great difference between these two great peoples of the earth belongs to the glory of the church, the main theme of this entire book as we have considered. That glory is the beauty of the church. If you ask, what is it that makes the church beautiful? We have considered many, many things. But among them is this great difference, this great transformation of the members of the church who are Gentiles and were Gentiles as was others. So different are they that they are new creatures. And the apostle in the text can speak about them putting on a new man. And a new man such that they listen to Christ, they hear Him, they think like Christ, and they look like Christ, and act like Christ. And those are the things we're going to consider this evening. Having so learned Christ, under three points, hearing Him, looking like Him, and acting like him. First, hearing him. The apostle in this passage is referring theologically to what we call conversion. Conversion. The word conversion literally means to turn around, to change. Theologically, it refers to a radical change in a person from being unbelieving and wicked to being believing and obedient to God in one's mind and heart. That's what conversion is. This radical change in a person with regard to their mind and their soul and their actions and their life. That this is what the Apostle is talking about is evident because the text calls us to engage in two radically different activities that together are the two parts of conversion. He speaks of a putting off a former conversation, an old man, and being renewed in the new man, putting on the new man. Those are two radically different actions. And those two radically different actions are the two parts of conversion. 
On the basis of this text, therefore, we can say what conversion is. When one looks at this text, one can say that conversion is the act of God in the regenerated child of God, whereby God renews the spirit of their mind, making him or her a new human being, a new man in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. And so that individual also lives out of that new man, while at the same time laying aside and forsaking the old man. That's what conversion is. It is the act of God causing that great change. It should be obvious, therefore, also, that this is an act of God that makes us active. This conversion is even described in terms of the individual putting off and putting on. We may say that conversion is the act of God causing an individual to put on a new man and to put off an old man. That's what conversion is. And it's really this particular text that forms the basis of the description of conversion that we have in the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 88. Question and answer 88 of the Heidelberg Catechism, when it asks, what is true conversion, is looking right at this text and its sister text in Galatians. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts. The mortification of the old man and the quickening of the new man. We have a similar confession in the Belgic Confession, Article 24. We believe that true faith being wrought in man by the hearing of the Word of God and the operation of the Holy Ghost doth regenerate and make him a new man, causing him to live a new life. So the text is about conversion. Conversion, therefore, is a radical change. It is a turning about, a radical turning about from one direction to another direction in the child of God. The radical nature of conversion is brought out by the very contrast between the former conversation of these Gentiles and that of them after conversion. Before conversion, they walk as all the other Gentiles walk. Their mind is darkened. They have understanding darkened. They are alienated from God. They are ignorant. They have blindness of heart. They are past feeling about God and the neighbor so that they're given over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with all greediness. That's all what belongs to the old man. It's all what belongs to and is the person prior to conversion. After conversion, there's a radical change. The mind is no longer empty but full. The understanding is no longer darkened, but lightened. There is no longer an alienation from God, but there is friendship with God. There is no longer ignorance in them, but knowledge, true knowledge. No longer blindness of heart, but seeing of heart. No longer past feeling with regard to God and the neighbor, but having feeling. Feeling of love toward God and the neighbor. And not now given over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness, but the exact opposite of that. The great radical contrast is brought out too by the description of it even in the text. The two words that are used, old and new. Conversion 
involves something happening to an old man and then also a new man. That describes the radical character of this change. What is being described here by the old man and the new man is how we live in our natures. It refers to the entirety of our being according to an old nature and then a new nature. In our whole being, body and soul, our person lives with an old nature. This is the old nature that the child of God received in his conception. An old nature as old as Adam itself, for that is the source of that nature. So when it's referring to the old man or the new man, it's talking about what a person is, the fundamental makeup of them, their nature and how they live according to that nature. Prior to conversion, there is only an old man. And that old man cannot be put off. It is what you are. It is only what you are. But in conversion now, there is the creation of a new man. A man that was not there before. That is an aspect of your being that is entirely new. That is placed in you and out of which you live. So that even as you lived according to your old nature in your body and soul and did everything through that old nature, there is a new nature. And one can live and operate and think and act according to that new nature. So those words old and new are intended to drive home the great radical contrast or change of conversion and then also describe those two aspects of one's being who is converted according to when they receive them. One is old because one has always had it as long as he is in existence and it's as old as Adam himself. In contrast, there is a new man, and new because one always receives it after the old man. Regardless of when one receives the new man, and in some it may be even in the womb, and even at birth, or shortly after birth, it always is after the old man, and thus it's called the new man. One more thing that should be brought to mind here, especially in the controversy that has occurred in our churches, is the destruction of the notion that the new man is the Spirit of God. Now it is true that the new man comes from God, it has its source in God, it is the implanting of a new life, the new man itself cannot and may not, indeed one should consider it blasphemous, to consider the new man the Holy Spirit. That can be proven conclusively from the text itself, for it's referring to a man Say what you will, the Holy Spirit is not a man. The Holy Spirit is one of the persons in the infinite triune being of God. There is a great contrast, therefore, between the Holy Spirit himself and his person and the new man. That man is a man. Proof for that is it's created we read the new man is created. The Holy Spirit is not created. God may not be created. If God is created, 
then God is no longer God. It should be blasphemous to say that the Holy Spirit is created. To say Jesus Christ even is created as to his person is heresy and has been rejected by the church. But the new man is created, created in righteousness and true holiness. Obviously has to be created because there's something wrong with the old man. It's lacking in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. The new man involves renewal. Renewal is a radical change. Renewal involves the recreation or the reforming of something that's deformed and wrong. Say what you will, the Holy Spirit does not need to be renewed. The fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit is the explanation for the new man. The Holy Spirit is not the new man, but rather, He is the one who creates the new man. If you ask, how is this new man created in righteousness, knowledge, and holiness, the answer is because God, the Holy Spirit, the Creator, creates it. Why is there a renewal? And the answer is because the Holy Spirit is the great renewer. And He operates on the individual, the man, the person, the nature, so that something that was not there before now is there. Now, this conversion begins as to its process, as to what it is, with the renewal of one's mind. Now when I say that, I do not mean at its most basic beginning, because there are other passages that describe very clearly that conversion begins with what we call regeneration. It begins with regeneration. It begins with the implanting of a new life. We may say a new man, a new life principle in the heart of a human being. That happens in a moment. It happens instantaneously so that formerly one was dead, now he is alive. And so we distinguish between regeneration and conversion. And yet, conversion, we must never forget, is really the continuing of a process that begins in regeneration. You may think of it very roughly like the conception of a human being. The conception of a new baby. There is an instant where there is a spark of life where previously there was no life at all. There is a moment where there is a generation, a begetting of a new human being, a new person. That person did not exist before except in the mind of God. They were not there and now they are there. And that's the beginning of a lifelong process of growth. That's much the relationship between regeneration and conversion and explains too why those words sometimes are used interchangeably. You will sometimes discover that in our creeds where there is no distinction, strictly speaking, between the two terms because they're seen really as one act of God. But we distinguish because in regeneration, the child of God is completely passive. Oh, that implanting of new life will make them alive, just like the conception of a child. There is life there that was not there before, and that life will cause that child to grow, to kick, to move, eventually to speak and to walk and to talk. That child, because of regeneration, becomes active, actively alive with their own mind and heart and will. That's what's going on in this conversion. It's really the act of God. 
whereby He makes us alive to act, to will, and to think in a new way. Conversion, that term as opposed to regeneration, therefore, is a work that emphasizes that this is a work of God in salvation whereby we are made active. And that is what's emphasized also in our creeds. First, that it's an act of God, strictly an act of God. That's the Canons Head 3-4, Article 10. It, conversion, not just regeneration, but conversion, must be wholly ascribed to God who has chosen His own from eternity in Christ. That's why it must be wholly ascribed to God. He has chosen His own. Wholly ascribed to God because He confers upon them faith and repentance. That's why it's wholly ascribed to God. So faith and repentance. Where do they come from? They're conferred by God. And it must be wholly ascribed to God because He's the one who rescues them from the power of darkness and translates them. Translates is a biblical word for conversion. Sometimes regeneration. Translates them into the kingdom of His own Son so that they may glory not in themselves but in the Lord. Notice this is an action where God makes us alive to act in a certain way which is that we no longer act for ourselves, for our own sake. That's the old man. But now the individual acts for God, for the glory of God, including ascribing to God all the glory and honor for this work. At the same time, it's a work of God making the child of God active, which is the very next article in the Canons 3-4 Three four eleven. But when God works in them true conversion, notice, when God works in them true conversion, what happens? He opens the closed and softens the hard heart. The idea is He opens the closed heart and He softens the hard heart. He circumcises that which was uncircumcised. So he takes a Gentile who is alienated from God and he makes him a spiritual Jew, a child of Abraham. That's biblical language for he gives them faith. He infuses new qualities. That's why it's a new man. There is an infusing, a placing inside of someone new qualities and new qualities specifically in the will. There's a will that belongs to your man, your old man, and then your new man. And part of it is the will. There's new qualities put there. So the will can will things that previously it could not will. Prior to conversion, one can only will evil and sinfulness. Even when one thinks he's doing good, he's willing the evil. But in conversion, There is new qualities put into the will, which heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and refractory, stubborn. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable. He actuates, actuates and strengthens it, that like a good tree, it may bring forth fruits, of good actions. That's conversion. And now conversion always begins with the mind. That's not only the implication here in the passage, but also in our creeds. Now sometimes you must understand mind and heart are used almost interchangeably. And they can be thought of that way. The mind often is associated with knowledge, and the heart is often associated with the will. And the point is that God changes one, He changes the other. But you will often find it put this way, even though we often, 
according to Scripture, say that regeneration begins in the heart. That's where it begins. The first thing that it affects beside the heart is the mind. That too is the Canons 3, 4, 11. Even though it talked about the will, when God works in them true conversion, the first thing is He powerfully illuminates their minds by the Holy Spirit. They may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. And it goes on to say, so that they actually believe. This is why the emphasis is upon the mind. When our fathers teach this, that the first thing actuated and changed is an illumination of the mind, number one, they're looking at a passage such as this. Think about what was the great problem of the other Gentiles. Where does the apostle start? What's their great, great problem? And the answer is, they got an empty mind. Their understanding is darkened. There's something wrong up here. So naturally, if there's going to be a conversion, a change, there has to be first a changing in the mind. But not only that, but it follows from what faith is. What is faith? And one aspect of faith is that it is a certain knowledge. How can faith have a certain knowledge unless there is a change of the mind. Now, this is where listening comes in. It's amazing how often in a discussion of what conversion is, and there's many such discussions going on, and especially discussions going on about what comes first and what comes second, And if you say this is first and that's second, then you're charged with making man first and not God and all kinds of other things. Often left out of the discussion is hearing. Because hearing comes before even faith. And that's biblical and confessional. Regardless of the role of faith, regardless of the fact that every aspect of salvation comes through faith, the Bible is very, very clear that faith comes by hearing, which is why it's the first point. So if you look at what I'm saying, is conversion involves a regeneration, and this regeneration gives a spark of life, and the spark of life is going to change something, and I'm telling you it's going to change the mind. You have to see inserted in between there, something heard something first. Ye have not so learned Christ. When the apostle describes conversion and what it is, and he's going to even describe the radical change in behavior, it begins with learning Christ. Ye have not so learned Christ. That's what he's saying about his audience. He's saying, really, the entire difference between you and the other Gentiles is that you learn something, and that implies they heard something, because you cannot learn without hearing. Well, what did they hear? They heard the gospel. They heard the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how the Ephesians heard Christ, and they learned Christ. There's a lesson to be learned here, by the way. If you go back in Protestant Reformed history, you will discover that at one time there was a controversy. Controversy is not new in our churches. And the controversy was whether the preacher preached Christ and whether those who heard the preacher heard Christ. And there were those who took the opinion, a very strong opinion and stance, that the preacher was not speaking Christ. And the words he spoke were not Christ's words. And the argumentation was very simple. The preacher is a sinner and a sinful man. So how can that be? 
Beside, preachers make mistakes. They're not inerrant. Only the popes supposedly are inerrant. That's Roman Catholic doctrine, that a preacher is inerrant. So how then can one say that the preacher preaches Christ? And not just preaches about Him, but when the words are spoken, what you hear is not my words. You don't hear Reverend Langerak. You don't hear what I'm saying. In fact, if you do, then you don't have a preacher any longer. One giveaway of a false preacher is one who always says, well, I say, I maintain, this is my point of view. And when our fathers settled that controversy, they went right to this passage. This is where they went among many. Because you have to ask yourself, how in the world did the Ephesians learn Christ? And not only learn Christ, but the apostle goes on to say, you heard him. He says, if so be that ye have heard him. Now there's a conditional sentence. And he's not saying here that it's in doubt that they heard him. But he's saying, look. You in my audience heard him. Other, unlike other Gentiles, perhaps others even in this city, you heard Christ. You learned Christ and you heard Christ. Now, how is that possible? Christ is in heaven. Christ suffered and died and Christ ascended long, long before the church at Ephesus was formed. And the answer is, they heard Christ and they learned Christ through the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul spoke, what they heard was not the Apostle Paul, but they heard Christ. They heard, thus saith the Lord, a long-standing phrase that goes all the way back to the prophets. And this is why Scripture places great emphasis upon the office of ministry. Earlier we considered a passage that talked about that great emphasis on the office of the ministry. And the importance that the individual be called and officially sent by the church. You understand this has to be the case. Because Reverend Langerak and his words do not have the power to affect conversion. My words and what I say do not have the power to affect this new creation, to create a new man, to regenerate and then convert, to fill the mind, to empty it of its darkness and blackness. I don't have that power. Only Christ does. And Christ only speaks through an ordained and called minister. And this is exactly what the Apostle taught in the book of Romans. He begins in the book of Romans by calling preaching the power of God unto salvation. And then he asks this question. After saying, if one calls upon the name of God, he will be saved. There's the promise of the gospel. Anyone who calls upon the name of God shall be saved. Then he asks a series of questions. But how shall they call on him whom they have not believed? How can you call on God unless you don't believe in him? You must believe before you call on God. But how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? How can you call upon, how can you believe on someone whom you have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they have a preacher unless He be called or sent? And if you look very carefully at that passage, you'll discover that in the English it says, of whom they heard, but the original is whom they heard. Even then the apostle says they heard Christ. So the very first thing that happens in conversion is one hears. It's why the Ordo Salutis and the Reformed faith has always been first the calling. There is a call of the gospel. Herman Hooksman put regeneration first. Regeneration was first because he knew that even to hear one first must be regenerated. But the fact of the matter is there's a calling and then a hearing. And faith comes 
through hearing. One must hear before one believes. That's the teaching of Scripture. The next great change is not simply that one first hears Jesus Christ, where previously one was blind, where one was ignorant, where one was without knowledge, so that now they not only hear Christ, but because they heard Christ, their mind now is filled with the Word of Christ. They're no longer ignorant, but knowledgeable. They have a right understanding of themselves and of God. But there is a change in appearance so that one looks like Christ. And that too is brought out in the passage by one of the two aspects that describe this radical change of conversion. It's interesting. I could attack this text or look at this text or examine it according to the two great things, the old man and the new man, putting off the old, putting on the new. That's the approach of the Heidelberg Catechism. But you could also go through this passage and look at it as regards to those two aspects and what they do to an individual. And you'll discover one of them has to do with not only hearing, but has to do with appearance. And that's brought out when you look at what he says about the old man and new man. Conversion is putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And that word put off and put on is the word that describes someone changing their clothes. So that one can look at the transformation this way. That conversion involves someone, as it were, unzipping the old man and stepping out of it so that the old man now is thrown on a pile, discarded, put off and discard, and then they put on the new man, just like a change of clothing. And the apostle does that deliberately. He deliberately uses that language because he's trying to distress, to stress that conversion so radically changes someone that they look different. Just as if you were wearing tattered old rags and you threw them off and you put on a brand new suit, it would fundamentally make you look different. Everyone could see the transformation for themselves. So radical is this different between the old man and the new man. It's as if there's an entirely new nature. Now we have to be cautious here. It's not an entirely new nature in the sense that it's no longer human, as it were. It is new because it comes from outside of you. It's new because it was not there before. But it's still a human nature that's brought out when it's called a man. One doesn't put off the old man and put on a new God, as it were. And yet, so radically different is it in appearance and behavior and everything else that it's like putting off and putting on an entirely new man. Well, why is that? Because it is the imparting of the resurrection nature of Jesus Christ. That is, it is not simply the imparting of God, the triune God's nature, but it's that nature of God as it's found in Jesus Christ that explains the oddity why on the one hand, it looks like God, it acts like God, it thinks God's thoughts, yet is human. You see, in salvation and in conversion, we are never transformed into God. We become partakers of the divine nature, but always in such a way that we remain distinctly different than God. That's always something that has to be kept in mind. Salvation is not the transformation of you so that formerly you were human and now you're God. That you become Christ Himself. That you become God. 
God wouldn't and cannot allow that. There's only one God of three persons. But we do so share in His nature in such a wonderful way that it's new, yet man. It's God's own heavenly and divine nature found in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's heavenly. It's from above. It doesn't rise out of this earth and through the generations of Adam. And so different is it that even though you're a human being living in a world of other human beings, someone can see it. And that's always a sign of a Christian, you see. There's something wrong, dreadfully wrong. So wrong that one can even question if that individual is converted, if you can tell no difference between them and all the other Gentiles. If you examine their life, if you examine the things that you can see even by appearance, you don't even really even have to look into the heart. Simply watch them how they behave and what they do, what are their affections on, what do they think about and act on. And you see it no different fundamentally than the world. You have an individual who's not converted. And keep in mind that that doesn't mean this individual has to be among the worst in the world. Just simply look at the world. Even an ordinary citizen They're not all bank robbers. They're not all those who go and steal their neighbor's wives and all that. Many of them lead very outwardly decent lives. And yet when you look at them, they're empty. They're vain. The greed shows forth. The discontent, the impatience, and all sorts of other things. That changes when there is conversion. And it can be seen. It can be visible. And that's one of the wonderful things about the church. One of the sad, sad things about those who have left us and their doctrine is that they are denying this. In their piousness to preserve grace and keep man out of salvation so that man is not saving himself, they are denying this great beauty of the church. This is something the apostle celebrates. He's saying when you look at the church and you look at the members of the church, there is already now, long before heaven, long before the new creation, a beauty, a glorious beauty that you can see in the church. It's visible. It's as if they took off all their old clothes and they have new clothes. So different are they. The woman who was a whore filled with filth, putrid and stinky, has been cleansed and clean. So there she is, dressed in white. That's the radical difference of conversion. What you see is another. And not only that, but when you see them, you see Christ. You see them act like Christ. It's always a good thing to remember when one must judge, when one must make judgment. Is this speech Christ's speech? Is their thinking Christ thinking? Is their behavior the kind of behavior that one would expect from Christ or that is even found in the Holy Scriptures? How did Christ speak? How did Christ deal with others? How did Christ deal even with His enemies? How did Christ deal with those who reviled Him? Like a raving lunatic and a madman? With hatred? With envy? With guile? The third great aspect of the change is action. That, of course, follows from appearance. What is it that makes this change visible? And the answer is the actions. Now I'm not going to elaborate much on this this evening. That is because what follows is the description of the actions. 
These verses all go together, and the apostle is going to describe the great difference. And one of the things you'll notice is that in each of the actions that he describes, and he covers them from matters of the mouth to matters of the behavior, that there is a putting off and a putting on. In other words, this is a continual process, which is also described by the Heidelberg Catechism. That there can be no positive action of the new man putting it on and doing certain things without also at the same time and simultaneously putting off those things. So that, for example, if one is going to live honestly with his neighbor, he must first stop stealing. Let him that stole steal no more and then go and work honestly with his hands. If one is going to speak the praises of God and speak truth with his neighbor, he must stop lying about his neighbor. He must cease backbiting his neighbor. That too belongs to this great change. So that even when I talked about the discarding of the old man, one must understand that that is a continual process. And it's described very well in the Heidelberg Catechism. That there cannot be a joy and delight in God unless there is at the same time a mourning and a grief over sin. That, beloved people of God, is conversion. The great, great difference between the child of God the believer, one who belongs to Jesus Christ and his body and the other Gentiles, or even, we may say, we ourselves, of ourselves, in our own nature. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we are thankful that we could consider this morning the great radical change of a child of God that involves our will and our mind and our heart and even our actions that we wholly ascribe to Thee, the living God, as Thy great work saving us, that it is Thy great work changing and transforming us so that we are Thy people, not merely in name, but we look like Thee and act like thee. In fact, we have thine image in true righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. And so we give thee thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.